hello there, Peter Mansbridge here with the latest episode, the Friday episode of the Bridge Daily. And you know what that means. It's the weekend special. It's your questions, your comments, your thoughts. After another busy week, week seven of the Daily Bridge, as we cover the uh, COVID-19 story from a number of different angles. I did want to say before we begin today with your questions and comments that I uh, am very grateful for the number of you who wrote concerning last night's podcast, because if you did listen to it, you know that um, especially the last uh, 10 minutes or so was uh, was pretty personal, actually, on my part, and I don't usually go that route, but nevertheless, I did last night, and I appreciate the uh, kind comments that many of you made about that. Now, um, Fridays, as we say, is kind of the, like the mailbag day, and it comes at the end of a, a week where, you know, it, this has actually been increasing over the last few weeks. The number of uh, listeners the podcast seems to get, uh, you know, it's always a gamble trying to go with these stats that the, the, that are put out by the different uh, podcasting outfits, but um, I'm assuming... Uh, the, there's uh, some truth in them, and the the numbers have steadily been going up week after week, and this was our, uh, you know, our best week yet, and it's you know it's always reflected in the amount of mail. We got a lot of mail here at the the Bridge Daily. I make it sound like you know here at the Bridge Daily, where our staff is constantly looking at mail. You're listening to the staff of the Bridge Daily. It's a uh, Basically a one-man band, although Will, my son, does help out on occasion um, in terms of the technical end of things, of, especially when we have uh, interviews and putting, uh, dropping the interviews into the podcast. However, it's basically a one-man show, and it's a hobby podcast. It's not associated with any network or any sponsor. There have been sponsors who wanted to, to get involved in this podcast, but so far I've resisted that temptation and I'm sort of eating the cost of this on, on my own, but enjoying doing it. I got to tell you, very much enjoying doing it. Um, okay, so let's uh, let's get to your mail. And once again, as usual, this go, comes in no particular order. Although the last letter is always one I tend to feature by reading it almost in its entirety. A lot of you write great letters, and there's always. Uh, a number of them which I could use for the last letter of the uh, the podcast. But, you know, I try to pick one and give it that sort of end of podcast for the week um, highlighting because it usually in some way tells a story about the kind of week we've had with this story always so dominant in our minds. All right. Let's go. Starting off with uh, Robin Ward from Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, He starts off by saying, Janice Stein was exceptional, tapped into one of my longings, which is this whole issue of uh, Canada-U.S. relationship. Uh, And Janice was a guest on the podcast a couple of nights ago, and uh, many nice comments about uh, what Janice had to say. It 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 was good, thoughtful discussion. Anyway, Robin says, one of my regrets about COVID, among other things, is that it's overtaking almost all news coverage. Events that would otherwise be newsworthy are getting dropped. 
Well, that's true. You talk to any news organization, um, and, and they'll tell you that, that there are so many angles to the COVID story, and they're trying to cover them all every day, every night. And as a result, other stories that on a normal day would definitely get coverage are not getting covered. Well, these are not normal times. Robin says, I've been wondering if you might consider, and if you have the resources, could you offer insight into the upcoming U.S. federal election? Robin, it's in November. This is May 1st today. we got lots of time to cover the U.S. election. Uh, and we will. And as you quite properly note, there's all kinds of angles to it. Uh, at the moment, the whole idea of going daily was to, to focus on COVID-19 uh, and to try and come up with angles that others weren't talking about. And that's what we've been trying to do. On occasion, we will break out and talk about something else. And there may be time, um, you know, before this fall uh, to get into the U.S. election. But thank you for your comment. Uh, Elizabeth... Stalens, I believe that's the way uh, Elizabeth pronounces her name, Stalens or Stylens, uh, from uh, Edmonton. She makes a number of points, but I like this one, particularly fits today. I thank you for the beloved mailbag editions of The Bridge. I enjoy hearing the letters from fellow listeners as they often have thoughtful insights and questions that really make me think. I want to mention a letter you read during your mailbag edition last Friday in which a lady named Donna wrote about the way we perceive staying at home. She brought to my attention the importance of perspective and moreover the impact wording can have on our perspective and our attitudes. I'm currently self-isolating. When I first realized I was going to have to self-isolate at home for the next couple of weeks, I immediately started telling myself I was now trapped, trapped or stuck in my house. Donna's letter brought me to a vital realization that my house, albeit a humble abode, is not just a house, it is a home. A home I'm lucky enough to categorize as safe, warm, and comfortable. This brought a much-needed shift in perspective and a deeper sense of gratitude, both of which are making the bumpy days go by much smoother. So thank you, Donna. David Oliver writes from Victoria, Nice to hear Janice Stein the other night. For some reason, the subject of U.S.-Canada relations brought to mind the Turner-Mulroney debate during the 1988 election. I was never a fan of Turner, or Mulroney for that matter, but his succinct, this is Turner's, succinct critique of the trade deal, unscripted, articulate, from the heart, was a classic moment in Canadian politics. It's a shame we don't get TV debates like that anymore. And it is a shame. In fact, both 84 and 88 uh, were great debates. Kind of different outcomes. Mulroney kind of cleaned up in the 84 debate. Turner had a good 88 debate. Lost both those elections to majority governments to Mulroney. Uh, But you're right. Debates unlike what we see these days. Adrian Lee writes from Unionville, Ontario. As a proud Asian Canadian living in Canada for the past 30 plus years, it has been disheartening to read headlines relating to racist and violence incidences as a result of the pandemic. The article below was especially very disappointing to read. Uh, That is an article 
that uh, highlights a poll taken by the Chinese-Canadian National Council that said one in five Canadians think it's not safe to sit beside an Asian person on public transit. That is disheartening. The article, um, the U.S. influence has not helped either with conservative leadership hopeful or hopeless, writes Adrian, Derek Sloan, questioning whether Dr. Tam works for Canada or China. We have a right to be critical of our public officials, but not in the absence of facts. Sloan's been hammered on that. Kind of as a weasel-mouthed attempt at backtracking on that, his comments. Not an apology. Adrian concludes, we should not be naive to think racism only exists south of the border. We need to do better here in Canada. As Canadians, we must stick together and speak out against all forms of racism, especially standing up for citizens who are not able to defend themselves. I worry Asian Canadians will be stigmatized as a result of this pandemic. I share your worry on that, Adrian. But I also believe in Canada, and I think we are bigger than that. So let's see how that plays out. Cliff and Marguerite Smith from Burlington, Ontario. As a retired couple, we've been very fortunate to have traveled and met many interesting people. Some of the most memorable acquaintances have been with Americans. Even though we seldom correspond, we still remember and cherish the warmth we receive from them. This is a result of that discussion the other night about Canada-U.S. relations. We feel awful about the leadership that currently controls the White House and can only hope that there will be a change in government this November. In decades to come, Canada will continue to need a cordial relationship with the American government. The prosperity of our country will depend on it. And the world needs us to be the calmer voice in all this hysteria. Larry Williamson, also on this topic, among other things, he says, I had the occasion to discuss my view of Americans, I do like them, with a well-traveled labor lawyer in Toronto, and he told me his view, which I've never forgotten. He said that in his opinion, Americans are the best hosts in the world, and the absolute worst guess. I agree with them, says Larry, and I continue to. In this world, in spite of their current president, we could not have better friends. Uh, Brendan Rao, or Rowe, not since the Vancouver 2010 Olympics have conversations and social media posts bubbled over with gushing admiration for being Canadian like we've witnessed over the past weeks. Some point to expert, science-based communications we receive in briefings daily by clearly competent medical leaders that Canadians are proud of. Staying in the medical arena, one cannot help but be overcome by emotion at the 7 o'clock, 7.30, thank the medical professionals. Celebrations that take place nightly throughout Canadian cities. And they do. Yeah, we're out there on our front porch, as most people on our block are. Political junkies point to unprecedented federal-provincial cooperation and bipartisanship as a needed and appreciated Canadian outcome of the crisis. Then came Stronger Together, where a staggering amount of Canadian celebrities united, encouraging Canadians to stay home, stay strong, and support frontline workers as well as Food Banks Canada. And they raised millions of dollars because of that. 
As difficult as this has all been, writes Brendan, it's shown many of us the true qualities of being a Canadian are shining bright, not just at home, but yet again, the envy of the world. We wondered aloud the other day in one podcast whether COVID would kill cash. Now somebody wrote about that. Sarah Tacone. Actually, she started off the debate about Canada-U.S. But she wrote again this week from Oakville, Ontario, easy access to credit and billing via credit cards, lines of credit, debit cards with overdraft protection, direct payment, and numerous other options has reinforced the mindset of buy now, pay later, giving us the impression that we have more money than we actually do. Using hard, cold cash avoids this problem because when it's gone, it's gone. I don't object to a cashless society, but with it comes increased accountability to manage our finances and our lifestyles more responsibly, a return to living within our means. Cash is still king, whether it's virtual or legal tenor, tender, says Sarah. Um, Amy, didn't give us her last name, but Amy writes from... Uh, Rural Southern BC. I love her, uh, <laughs> her her email handle. Backwardsbear at yahoo.ca. <laughs> anyway, here's what she has to say. I had to laugh on Tuesday when I saw the title of your podcast that day asking if this was the beginning of the cashless economy. I'd actually just walked out of a store empty-handed as their debit machines were all down. And I, of course, had not brought any cash to town with me as I had said to myself, no one's taking cash these days. This has happened to me twice this week. I live in rural southern BC, boundary country, they call it, about 20 minutes out of the community of Grand Forks. I don't have cell access, and we have such slow internet speed, it can be hard to watch a YouTube video. Especially now with COVID, our internet is really struggling. I'm Working from home, doing phone calls as Zoom is not an option. To be clear, I'm not complaining at all. It's actually a great way to live. Self-isolation is my norm. As you can see, she sent me a picture. It looks spectacular where she lives, the countryside. But it is it's pretty isolated. But I wonder about what happens in a cashless economy when the connections we need to make it work aren't available all the time. Thanks, Amy. Susan McIntyre, also, same topic. Cashless society, never will it happen. On March 10th, I took out money and I put it away in my cupboard for the possibility of no access to funds during the crisis. I lived through the blackout of 2003 when the electrical grid went down and I had no access to funds. Electricity is required to run everything. This event made me very aware that technology isn't available if we don't have electricity. If the experts who run our nuclear plants and other sources of power got sick, what would happen? I don't know what would happen, but I was going to have cash on hand just in case. Adam McNiff writes, I'm a history teacher here in London, Ontario. That's not far from here in Stratford. He's with the Thames Valley District School Board. I'm not sure if you'll remember this, Peter, but you and I met briefly at beaumont Amel in 2017 during the commemorations for the 100th anniversary of Vimy Ridge. I was there with a group of students, and you and your team were late leaving. 
Nevertheless, you were gracious enough to spend a few minutes posing for a picture, and he attached the picture, and seeing that picture totally reminded me of that moment. Um, you talk to students about the connections to Vimy and about what Vimy should mean for all Canadians. For the past two years, I've been one of many teachers across the country planning to bring another group of students to Europe, this time to the Netherlands and Great Britain, for the 75th anniversary of the liberation of and of VE Day. Obviously, COVID-19 has seen that trip and the commemorations associated with those important milestones cancelled. I know you'll mention anniversaries on the podcast, and I will, and... Adam asked me to remind students why these are important dates. There's a big one coming up uh, Tuesday, May 5th. This coming Tuesday is the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the Netherlands, a good chunk of it done by Canadian troops. And the Dutch never forget us, never forget us. You go to the Netherlands, you go to Holland, go to Amsterdam, you say you're a Canadian man, they will give you anything you want. We uh, lost a lot of young men in that campaign. You know, it started on D-Day. We went through France, then we went through Belgium, then into the Netherlands before we ended up going into Germany. And in each one of those places, a lot of good young Canadian fellows uh, made the ultimate sacrifice. It is a part of our history. It is a part of our legacy as a country. So May 5th, Tuesday, is the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the Netherlands. May 8th, a couple of days later, is the 75th anniversary of VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, the end of the war in Europe. And there will be celebrations attached to that. I've been to both of those anniversary celebrations many times in the past, the 50th, the 55th, the 60th, 65th, 70th. I was in Appledorn. Uh, in the Netherlands, you know, five years ago for the 70th anniversary. And there were like 150,000 people in the streets to thank these old fellows, now well into their 90s, who had come back one more time to the streets they'd liberated in 1945. And some of them will... We're planning to be there again in a couple of days. They're not going to be able to because of COVID-19. There's already talk about, you know, we're going to try and do this next year on the 76th. We'll make it like it was the 75th. And I hope they do. We're losing these guys. And they're remarkable men. And it's important that young Canadians understand the impact we had as a country in other countries. So Tuesday, if you have time, I'm doing actually a special uh, online program uh, on uh, Tuesday uh, with True Patriot Love and with uh, General Rick Hillier, the former chief of the defense staff, and a couple of other people, including a couple of veterans, where we will remember both the Netherlands campaign and the end of the Second World War. So that's, I think, 4 o'clock Eastern time 
on Tuesday online. You can find it through True Patriot Love. And you can find it off, off my uh, Instagram and Twitter feed because I'll be talking about it. So keep that uh, in mind. It's great, Adam. Thank you for sending along that picture. There are great memories of, of that day and meeting uh, your class from that day. Julie Volkanschek uh, writes about charities. Remember we talked a couple of days ago to uh, Samantha Nutt, uh, the founder and executive director of uh, War Child Canada, about you know the challenges for charities in, in, at this time where money is scarce. Julie writes a very touching letter here. I'm going to read a chunk of it here. Four years ago, April 27th, our 12-year-old daughter underwent brain surgery and was diagnosed with two cancerous brain tumors. I'm sure you can appreciate how much I value our health care system when I tell you that after chemo, radiation, surgeries, hospital stays, transfusions, etc., etc., she is a cancer-free, vibrant 16-year-old. I expected the trauma, the vomit, the baldness, the worry, all of that, as soon as I heard cancer. It didn't make it any easier to see my child suffer or allow me to sleep for a year. But I had some understanding of what to expect. What I didn't expect was the warm embrace of charitable organizations at the absolute worst moment of our lives. And then she lists a whole group. Child Smile, the Canadian Cancer Society, POGO, Camp Trillium, Childhood Cancer Canada, Mac Kids, Camp Quality, Camp Ooch, just to name a few. We never thought that we would be on the receiving end of charity. We have great jobs. We're the people that give to help others less fortunate than we are. How humbling to understand that it's not always about money, but circumstance that brings charity to your door a circumstance you have no control over and see no light at the end of the tunnel. And suddenly, these organizations appear on your darkest days and make everything more bearable, happier even, because of the great work they do. I am truly in awe of their work. Julie, thank you for sending that letter. There's a lot more to it, but those are the highlights, and it really is... You know, it's testament to what charities do in our, in our lives and can do in our lives and the impact they can have, especially at those most critical times. Lexia Simmons writes from Honduras, where she takes great pride in saying it's sunny and hot, 30 degrees. Thanks for that, Lexia. I'm actually going to read her letter in two parts. I'm going to save part of it for next week because she's basically responding to uh, my call out last night for thoughts on this whole issue of education and kids and the impact it's having on kids when they miss two months of school. And I, But I want to get a collection of your letters. I've had a few already. Uh, I want some more, but I'll certainly be including... Alexis is great, but I wanted to read you the beginning of her letter because it's kind of neat. Hi, Peter. I hope you and your family are doing well in this pandemic everyone is trying to navigate through. We've met a couple of times. I'm an alumni of Mount Allison University, 
and participated. I used to be the chancellor there and participated in the Mansbridge Summit twice when you were there. My family came to Canada when I was 16 years old, and it was only through knowing you did I really discover the CBC and have developed a strong relationship with it over the years. I introduced my parents to CBC, and ever since then, it's always playing in the background of my house. Our family redefined the 24-hour news cycle. As it stands today, I'm teaching abroad in Honduras, My parents are in Edmonton. My sister lives in Ottawa. So our entire family is spread out, which is not the most ideal for this situation. We keep in contact a lot through Zoom, as you mentioned several times on your program. In Honduras, I can't watch regular network television, so I've begun listening to podcasts. Your podcast, along with The House, Power and Politics, West of Centre, and a bunch more have kept me constant company since moving to Honduras. Needless to say, I'm a bit addicted to the news. However, similar to you, I've had to start cutting back on my news consumption, and I've found solace in your podcast. That's nice. As you keep me updated on what's going on in a manageable way. To be honest, you are the only form of news I seem to be listening to recently, plus west of center. And this is why I'm reading all this. West of Center is an Alberta-based podcast done by my friend, one of the finest journalists I know, Kathleen Petty. And Kathleen just started West of Center uh, a couple of months ago now with the hopes that not only can it explain the West to the West, but more importantly, I think, explain the West to the rest of Canada. That's what West of Center is about. And Lexi is listening to it, and maybe you should too. Anyway, as I said, we'll read more of uh, Lexi's letter uh, next week because the focus on education and teaching and students. Rennie Robichaud writes, and this is a result of the special program we did the other day on hockey. The league seemed to forget that as much as the public would like to see sports return to TV, the public may not be so in support when they realize that sports are taking over valuable testing kits and testing resources. Also, leagues seem to simply assume that all players are just robots with no families to worry about the potential effects of this virus on them. Renee, I don't think that's entirely fair. I know more than a few players and some on the management side have raised this issue of testing and whether they'd be getting preferential treatment. So they want that sorted out before anything happens. Uh, And it's the same about their families. Some of those players, they don't want to be distant from their families at all. And they've made that clear. And some of them have spoken out on that. Nori Spence writes from Roebuck, Ontario. Ever heard of Roebuck, Ontario? It's small, okay? It's pretty tiny. It's in eastern Ontario. It's... um, just south of Merrickville, just north of north of Ogdensburg, New York, just on the other side of the St. Lawrence. So that's roughly where uh, Roebuck is. Nori writes a real short one. Just wanted to let you know that I'm doing the Canadian thing, catching up on your podcast while I clean up the maple syrup buckets. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Susan McIntyre, 
Bowmanville, Ontario. Um, she's talking about what what some communities are going through to try and um, deal with the social distancing, physical distancing issue. And she writes about actually where her her mom and her mom's husband, they're now 87 and 90 respectively, they live in the James Bay area of Victoria. Susan's writing from Bowmanville, but her brother's also living in James Bay and sent a message the other day. Walking in this area, that's James Bay, is predominantly the way of getting around so proper distancing is required and the sidewalks are not wide enough to accommodate this rule. People have been walking on the road when having to pass others walking on sidewalks. Now that more people will be out walking, the congestion on the sidewalks will cause more people to be walking on the roadways. Some streets, the ones that are used more frequently to get to the shopping district or parks, are being changed to accommodate for the increase in use. The parking is being eliminated on these streets and a barrier of reflective posts are being erected in the roads to create a walking path that will allow people to pass each other with the proper distancing without the danger of walking on a roadway used by cars. Parking restrictions on other roads in the area have been eliminated. That's interesting. Uh, Sharon. Sharon last name here somewhere, Sharon Crawford in Vancouver. Maybe while most of us are at home bouncing off the walls a little bit, we could brainstorm and think of things small and big that would heal our planet. My mama said many times, if people would just look after their own little family, there wouldn't be so many problems. A simplistic approach, but it can apply to your yard, your city, your province and country. When this pandemic is over, I hope we can re-enter the world gently and with respect. Getting close to the end here. Christine writes from um, Abbotsford, B.C. I'm interested to hear your thoughts and observations comparing how various levels of government are handling this crisis. Thinking about municipal, provincial, or state and federal levels of government, what are their roles, resources, powers, and priorities during situations like this? Have you observed some unique ways that various levels of government are supporting citizens? Have you noticed some leaders who are doing an exceptional job in their role? You've mentioned Angela Merkel and Dr. Bonnie Henry. Have you noticed any cities or towns that are doing an exceptional job? Listen, I think these are times when you really are able to test leadership. This is when you can tell whether someone, a man or a woman, has real leadership qualities. An unexpected crisis, how is it handled? You can make your judgments. You don't need me to tell you who's doing well and who isn't doing well. I mean, I've seen a lot of the Research data that's come out, and Canadians seem to be pretty uh, happy for the most part with their leaders. You've got some people squawking about some officials. But overall, the numbers are very solid for most Canadian leaders at the federal level, the provincial level. And I would imagine at the municipal levels as well. Now, I don't know. 
I, I, you know, I, I, I've seen some cities being concerned about some of the decisions leaders are making. I can only speak for my town where the leaders, whether they're in the, at the hospital level, whether they're the frontline worker level, whether they're at the first responder level, whether they're on council or whether they're in the mayor's office, they all seem to be ahead of the game on this. And they're working hard to listen to the people and to gently encourage the people to follow the rules. That's tough. It's very tough. Uh, But I can tell you this. When this is all over, and it will be over, there will be a real accounting of the decisions that were made on all levels of leadership in the country. But remember what I said. Real leaders are tested for their value and their competence during a crisis. You'll never get a bigger crisis than this one. So leaders are being tested, and they will be judged. They'll be judged during the crisis, and they'll be judged after it when we know all the facts about what happened. Dale Tasker writes from Holland Landing, Ontario. A number of your podcasts have featured confirmation and hope for rapid COVID-19 vaccine development. The next question will be how many Canadians will line up for a new vaccine. Anti-vaxxers tend to rely on herd immunity. They hope a significant number of other folks essentially protect them because if a majority are vaccinated, those who aren't won't get infected. Would it be worth having a podcast focusing on the pros and cons, both ethical and legal, of having mandatory vaccinations? I don't know, Dale. I tell you, I've done a lot of programs over the years on the vaccination issue, and I've had anti-vaxxers doing their thing some of those programs and I'm not sure I'm ready to go through that again. I believe in science. I believe in medicine. And I believe that there'll be no vaccine on the market until it's properly tested and vetted. Many of us are alive today because of the success of vaccines in the past. All right, last letter. And this is the special one for this week. So strap yourselves in, because this isn't short. But it's a great story. It's a story about our country. It's a story about our people. It's a story about those who can make a difference. So let me start. It was sent in to me by Julia Wallace. It's the story of Huron Counties. Huron County is, it's actually the county that I live in. Kind of starts in Stratford, goes right out to Lake Huron, Bayfield, that area, Okay. So it's a big swath of land in southwestern Ontario. So let me try to stick to Julia's words. This is the story of Huron County's Blue Water Rest Home. And the man, Dr. Charles Wallace, who got it built and now resides there, 
being cared for by nurses whose families he cared for, and some of whom he even delivered. He's also the greatest jazz clarinet playing rugby songs, reading, poetry collecting grandfather a girl could ask for. Now, he wasn't born here. He was born in Burma during the war. His father passed away in the war when he was 10 years old, and he was living in Scotland with his sister at the time. Following the war, they moved to London with his mother and were thrown into the middle of post-war London life. Her name was Jean, and she was wildly engaged in politics and jazz, with musicians and young activists flowing through the house constantly. She was the secretary of the Kensington and Chelsea Labour Party, and was often seen passing out the left-leaning Tribune paper at Earl's Court Station. She was a dear friend of Ivor Richards, who went on to become a cabinet minister in Harold Wilson's administration. I believe he was also Britain's representative to the United Nations in the 1970s. All of this to say there was never a dull moment in her life or flat. As she grew older, my grandfather decided to move the family to Canada to practice medicine under the promise that more money could be earned here. He ended up setting up his first practice in Zurich. Zurich is not far from Bayfield. It's a small town in southwestern Ontario. He ended up setting up his first practice in Zurich in the early 1960s, as there's always a demand for doctors in rural areas. He later ran an additional practice out of his home on Main Street in Bayfield. Shortly after establishing himself as a trusted physician in Zurich, he began advocating for the development of a long-term care home in the area so that his aging patients would be able to pass away peacefully and close to home in a community he loved and they loved. He put his money on the line and rallied the community behind him and got the Blue Water Rest Home built. In fact, I believe my grandfather and his friends raised more money for the project than the government did. To this day, you'll find his name on a wing of the home and listed on a plaque dedicated to the Founding Fathers that's displayed in the lobby. Politically, it was Conservative MPP Charles McNaughton who ultimately championed this project. My grandfather is so proud of what they accomplished together. And after McNaughton passed away in 1987, my grandfather and his unstoppable nurse practitioner, I believe one of the first in the country, Maggie Vischer, would make house calls for McNaughton's late wife. Throughout the 40-plus years they practiced together, my grandfather and Maggie were known for their humor, bedside manner, diagnostic genius, and house calls. Long after it was common practice, I'd catch the two of them sneaking out in a blizzard to go visit patients both at Blue Water and in their homes. Nothing could stop my grandfather from doing everything he could for those in his care. It was his job to ensure their well-being, and boy, did he take it seriously. The pair went on house calls until his retirement in 2014 at the age of 84. My grandfather never wanted to stop working. His end goal was simply to die in his boots. 
In fact, he sacrificed a tooth a year or two before retirement, slipping on ice outside of the rest home while attempting to deliver chocolates and gifts to lonely patients on Christmas morning. When they did finally retire, a party was held at the Zurich Arena, and there was a huge lineup in 30-degree heat just to get in and shake his hand. I've grown up surrounded by talented, energetic, pragmatic, and compassionate people. That said, no one has taught me more about the value of community, family, civil service, and our responsibilities to each other as human beings than my grandfather has. He's truly marvelous. I loved walking to the pub in Bayfield, arm in arm with him as smiling faces walked by and said, Hey, Doc! He was recognized everywhere. We'd run into people outside pubs in the Bloor West Village. We really liked pubs in the Wallace family. And once he was even recognized in the Zurich, Switzerland airport as he and I were returning from a trip to visit family around Christmas time. To bring this long story full circle, in the 80s, my grandfather moved his mother over so she could stay in the Blue Rest or the Blue Water Rest Home in the later years of her life. She ultimately passed away there with us by her side. Now, my grandfather resides there, and it's where we celebrated his 90th birthday last fall. He's cared for by people who have known and loved him for years. And what a unique blessing that is. There isn't a day that goes by that I don't appreciate how lucky we are to be in the situation we are. That said, Blue Water has just declared a COVID-19 outbreak. Emotionally, I am preparing myself for the worst. My heart breaks for all the families and caregivers. As a final gift to him, I'd like to get the story of the community doctor and the rest home he built out for the country to hear. Even in this time, it's uplifting to hear a story come full circle. And just to hear from that community. I'm in regular contact with the Blue Water Mayor, Maggie, and a number of the incredible nurses and support staff. I hope to shine a light on the fantastic work of healthcare providers in Ontario and allow Canadians to hear directly from some long-term care home nurses who are doing amazing work in spite of all the terrible stories. Well, that's not a terrible story, Julia. It's an inspiring story. And your grandfather sounds like an amazing person who's had such an impact on the lives of so many others and such a widespread area in this part of southwestern Ontario. But you're right. His story is a story that one assumes could be duplicated by a lot of other doctors and nurses and people who care about those who end up in long-term care facilities. I don't want to, want to make those final days, those last days, ones that they can enjoy. 
So this weekend, I know at least I will be thinking of Dr. Charles Wallace, and I'm sure many of you will be too. Julia, thank you again for sending that. And thank all of you for uh, listening to the Bridge Daily on the uh, special weekend edition. Another long one. Boy, this is being a long one. But I hope you found it worthwhile and helps you get through another another weekend. As we head towards week eight, and we're in May. Can you believe it? We're in May. This all started for most of us back in March, right? I can remember doing my steps in the snow in the backyard. This morning I was out there in the the early May weather. Still not summer. It's still barely spring. But it's a long way from March. And we're going to get through this together. I hope you have a good weekend. Thanks for listening. I'm Peter Mansbridge. The Bridge Daily will be back on Monday. Thank you.